Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We've got a great show lined up for you. You know I love Mondays, so today we've got Patrick Albany's coming up in just a couple of minutes, and then Tim Muehlhoff will be joining me. He's going to be talking about living out authentically the Christian perspective. And then Dr. Jerry White, he has been with the Navigators forever. He's going to be joining me talking about interacting God's view of work and the workplace. And then a spectacular replay of a show I did with Dr. Timothy Keller you know I'm a little bit of a Tim Keller junkie, so I'm going to enjoy talking to him about his uh, his book about Jonah. So that's all today on the program. We'll take a short break and bring Patrick on. The mission of Faith Radio is to lead people to Christ and nurture believers in their faith through Christ-centered media. So in everything that we do and in every program that we air, we want to lift up Jesus and make him known. It's your prayer and financial partnership that equip us to accomplish this mission. So thank you for your ongoing support and investment in this ministry. To make a gift today, call 877-93-FAITH. A newly designed welcome packet is now available from Faith Radio. It contains program information, host bios, and information on how to stay informed about giveaways and events. Whether you're a new listener or have been listening for a while, we'll be happy to send you the new welcome packet free of charge. All you have to do is go to myfaithradio.com, click on the link that says get your welcome packet, and it will be sent to you. Request the new welcome packet today at myfaithradio.com. All right, let's get our Monday started correctly. We want to start off uh, with talking to my friend and colleague from prestigious West Des Moines, Patrick Albanese, who happens to be in the big city of Chicago, Illinois today. Patrick, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. That, I uh, get a little break from some of the activity in the city. Yeah, now you are uh, in your old stomping grounds. You grew up in a suburb of Chicago, didn't you? Yeah, which, by the way, if you uh, grew up in the suburbs of Chicago... And if you tell people you're from Chicago and then they say where and they're expecting an actual like street location uh-huh. and then you then you mention the suburb, they go, you're not from Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really you. So, you know, you when you're out of this, the state of Illinois, by the way, most people that live in Chicago do not realize that Chicago is located in Illinois. <laughs> they're like, oh, it's a state. Oh, funny. <laughs> like, no, no. Chicago is not a state. Illinois is the state. But um yeah, so uh, yeah, outside of Illinois, you tell people sh- you're from Chicago, but if you're I- in Chicago, you mention the suburb, otherwise you will be chastised. By the way, uh, it's all my years of living here, um, I finally learned today how they turn the Chicago River green for St. Patty's Day. Yeah, what'd you find uh, yeah, out? They just put it, yeah, they just put it on one of the city buses for about 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and boy, oh boy, <laughs> that'll turn anything green. Yeah. Uh, I, I got a couple of green kids here meandering around saying, what What happened? That was fantastic. <laughs> Did we have to pay for that? <laughs> uh, so what's it yeah. like being on the streets of Chicago? 
in the summertime. You know, it's, well, it's great. And, uh, you know, of course, the weather here can be pretty unpredictable. But uh, I took the kids down to Water Tower Place today to see this historic landmark. And, you know, I think the historic landmark, you can't keep the homeless people from sleeping on it. <laughs> and, you know, there's people smoking illegal substances all over the place. But, of course, you have to use a paper straw because plastic straws are illegal. And then at, at one point uh, earlier today, we were in the Chinatown area about to get on the train and my son needed the, the restroom and they said, no, no bathrooms here. Just you know, go down the street and go into one of the restaurants. We got kicked out of six restaurants <laughs> and they see you coming in the door. They're like, no, 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 no bathrooms, no bathrooms, no bathrooms. It's like, you have a bathroom here. It's like, yeah, but you can't use it. So we finally saw Starbucks and I know they can't reject us, right? So uh, they did take us in, but they had to give us a secret code to get into a, a locked door, hermetically sealed, by the way. <laughs> go, this is, you know, one of those very, very progressive cities that says, you know, we just love everybody. You just can't use our bathrooms or straws. Isn't that, so, isn't that a basic human right, the old bathroom? It, I, I think so. You know, it's, it's funny because I know we talked about that when Starbucks went through that a couple of months ago, and then they changed their policy to allow uh, homeless people or somebody who just wanted to use the bathroom. They thought, gosh, it is kind of cruel to reject the bathroom. But uh, I know it comes with problems, uh, you know, that, you know, might be opening up to somebody parking themselves in there for uh, a lengthy period of time. So I don't know a, a proper solution to that other than do you put public restrooms in places? Because there's nothing. You go, as, as far as this city is concerned, you got to hold it. Well, I mean, let's just say you've got a, a range of time where you're holding it. What happens if you don't have that range? And it's more of an uh, absolute emergency. Um, can you yeah, say to the restaurant, I, I need to use your bathroom first, then I'll eat? I, I thought, you know, coming in with an eight-year-old kid in an emergency situation would, uh, you know, maybe soften a few hearts, but it didn't work. So I, I can only imagine that's where that, that inner city, uh, you know, the, the, the street smell comes from, <laughs> is that people at a certain point say, because we ended up missing our train going for the bathroom. But had we skipped the bathroom to get on the train, well, then we would have had a train emergency and so you really, as, as cool as public transit is, and it's fascinating, you know, once you figure out how to get from point A to point B via point double Z, Q and X. <laughs> <laughs> but you can get there. Uh, it's really cool. But, you know, you're, you're subject to the schedule. You know, you're subject to whatever the pricing says. And it's, it's difficult because we st I met my sister in a restaurant last night on another side of town. And you figure, oh, we'll just drive down there. Well, then there's a parking situation and, you know, you go over here and it's $22 to park for a couple of hours and it's $10 to park over there. And I'm sure that insuring a vehicle is expensive. So if you lived down here, you would say, no, I can't have a vehicle. It's just too much of a hassle. But then you're, you know, at the whim of did the bus make it? Can I make the bus? Are they running on time? Can I make it to the trains? Are the streets cleared enough where I can make it to the train station? So. I think it's just easier to kind of live in my sleepy little town of uh, prestigious West Des Moines. I think you're right. You know, I was looking at uh, an article that came out in on uh, from PragerU, and he was uh, talking about mass transit as you bring up mass transit and the cost of it. And there was a, a study by a mathematician, an Israeli mathematician, and if you lay down uh, 
a mile of subway track in Japan or Europe costs between 200 and 450 million dollars per mile. If you go to Vancouver, uh, it's a little bit cheaper. It's about 130 million per mile. Uh, but you shoot over to London, and for example, in London, uh, the Jubilee Line they cost 640 million per mile. All right, now let's go to our U.S. of A. in the New York in New York City, the Second Avenue Subway. This is a two-mile extension of an already existing line. It took 10 yeah. years to do, and it cost 2.4 billion per mile. Per mile. Per mile. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, and but I know where the revenue comes from. I mean, we were waiting for uh, our bus. I guess, I guess the buses are a little bit more efficient because they're using those roads that aren't very <laughs> right. <laughs> Hopefully, but uh, we saw somebody pull over. It just pulled over to the side just to drop off a passenger on Michigan Avenue. I mean, a, a very impressive drop and run, if you ever saw one. And but I mean, I don't know where this guy came from, but a but a, a cop on a horse out of nowhere. <laughs> Boom. He's blocking the car and they got a ticket. And, and I also have to admire his ticket writing skills because he wrote the ticket in under two minutes. That's impressive. And I'm thinking, wow, well, I don't know where the revenue comes from. They are really aggressive <laughs> here. Do not make mistakes in this town because some guy on a horse will show up. I, this is all of a sudden. My son's like, where'd that guy come from? That's a guy on a horse. I, says, I don't know, but he's writing a ticket. He must have been writing and driving. I so is it? does it pay off for the mass transit? I mean, it's really efficient and it's really wonderful when it works for you. And uh, it sure is kind of fun to, to sit back in a Wi-Fi enabled subway car while they do the driving. No, I'm, I'm kind of, I agree. It's kind of a nice thing in a big city. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I'd still prefer to get into my own car, do the driving myself, and you know, I'd also prefer not to. I mean, our hotel is actually reasonable. It's only I think forty-two dollars a day to park here. So, <laughs> and is it? We we came down to see a show once, uh, courtesy of my wife's employer, thankfully, and they got us a hotel, and we pulled into the hotel parking lot, and the guy says that's eighty-three dollars for the night. Per night to park your car. Does someone sit in your uh, car and guard it all night? What, what I would imagine if it doesn't come out clean, if yeah, it doesn't right. come out with a like with a new engine, a yeah. tune up, maybe some tires. <laughs> I don't know. Eighty three dollars a night. Yeah. Now you're laying down some nice memories with your kids because you know, summertime vacations are always great. And most kids remember summertime vacations. I read an article uh, this week that uh, four out of ten adults regret their life choices. And one of their life choices they regret the most is they feel like they work too hard and they miss the important stuff. You know, uh, and I, I believe we've talked about this because I'm one of those people that has to remind myself to enjoy the, the, the moment when it's happening. And uh, only you will get this. And I apologize to the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we're um, we're about to leave from Des Moines to, to come to Chicago. And I, I say to my wife, I say, you know, should I should I just pack a banjo so I have a little uh something to do in those down moments. She gave me that look. I don't know. If you're, I don't even have to tell you what the look is. I just have to say that look. And she's like, she goes, why don't you just skip that and enjoy your kids? And I'm thinking, gosh, I almost did it again. Yeah. Oh, you know, I know. What was I going to do? Just send the kids down to the pool, go, you kids have some fun. Let me know if anybody's having some trouble staying afloat. I'll be up here playing Cripple Creek. <laughs> I mean, that's just... All right, Patrick, let me so, take, 
Oh, let me take a little break here. Um, you know, it, it did say, this article did say, most people's desire to be remembered in a positive light. Most respondents say they expect to be remembered as moody or anxious. Many added oh. that they regret wasting so much time watching TV or staring at their smartphone or playing Cripple Creek on their banjo. <laughs> I knew that was on there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a short break. Patrick Albanese is my guest. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to the show. Patrick Albanese is my guest. He's vacationing with his beloved family in Chicago, Illinois right now. We're awfully glad he's, glad he's taking a little time out of his, his uh, sightseeing schedule and his work schedule to uh, chat with us. Because uh, Mondays, that's how we start our Mondays. That's how I start my Monday with you. So thank you for doing this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah, uh, you were talking about some of the sites and doing things. We went to the Museum of Science and Industry, which is one of the best anywhere. And uh, great memories with the kids. And it's really cool. Uh, being able to have an experience where you're going, they're really into this. Although, you know, you see weird things. We saw the U-boat, the, the captured German U-boat that they have there. Wow. And then you, you would see, that we saw this whole World War II exhibit. And I remember seeing this one picture on the wall. And I thought, you know, I never really noticed that before. But, and maybe you can answer this question for me. But why, why did the kamikaze pilots wear helmets and have parachutes? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. That's just, that's, I was like, you know, you guys, really, you're not going to be needing those. <laughs> not going to be helping you with what you're planning today. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, so uh, I also saw this uh, over the weekend uh, because I like to talk about what goes on over the weekend with you come Monday. Mario Mariano Rivera, uh, first ballot Hall of Famer with every writer. I don't think that's ever been done. Um, and yet yeah. he's still getting and, a fair and, amount of grief because of his conservative values. Well, and you know, the funny thing is... Could you even say there were conservative values? Because the author of that article sort of twisted and said, well, he's religious and he supports Israel. Therefore, um, he's conservative. And you say, you know, that's not necessarily, you know, the case. He happens to be religious uh, uh, and believe he just started a church and his wife is the pastor. Mm -hmm. He's done a tremendous amount of good. And I would say as a, as a guy who has never really cared for the Yankees, there was one player for certain, you know, uh, besides the Babe Ruths, of course, and the Mickey Mantles, but there was nobody more magical to watch than Mariano Rivera, you know, and I know you and I have always been a fan of his. It was always. one of those where they, you know, they, at the seventh inning, they'd say, oh, no, just call it. It's, he's coming in. Don't <laughs> even, just, just give him the win. I don't even want to have to face him because yeah. he's going to ruin my stats. And to find out, all these years later is that very quietly he just has done a tremendous amount of good in charity. And then to think that somebody would say, well, here's an opportunity to take a swipe at him. On a happy note, I think that the author of that article did receive an awful lot of pushback. They're going, oh, come on. Does everything have to be political? This is Mariano Rivera, one of the greatest you know, relief pitchers ever, ever in the history of the game. And it turns out he's a super sweet, charitable, wonderful God-loving guy, and you can't let that go. So I was kind of happy to see the pushback because I thought, oh boy, here's you know what's the chorus going to say? And the chorus was actually, oh, cut it out. I think that's a good sign. Yeah, I think I, that's a good sign. I do too. So I saw this little thing uh, also that Elizabeth Warren said, and she said because uh, on Monday she predicted an imminent economic crisis. 
uh, for some reason. And she said she had to re- pass legislation to regulate the financial sector, and that would sig- significantly reduce middle-class household debt. And I read that, I thought, huh, isn't it my job to reduce my household debt? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I'm thinking since you're the guy that incurred it. <laughs> <laughs> Seems, you would think it would fall on you. You know, I, I hear enough people. I was talking with uh, my nephew uh, and nieces last night. And, you know, uh, he's out of college. Uh, my niece is about to graduate and the other one's about to enter. And, of course, they're big fans of, say, Bernie Sanders, you know, wiping out college debt. Although my nephew said, he goes, I just don't see how the magic works. And it's the same thing with this Elizabeth Warren thing. I go, how does the magic work? Where does the money come from? To, to Do you magically, do you just go to every debtor you know, and I'm happy to hand you a stack of bills. <laughs> I'm sure you are. There's <laughs> Chase Manhattan here as well as Fargo. Like, call them, call them, Elizabeth, call them, Lizzie, whatever. <laughs> you call them and you tell them to stop calling me. But um, I, I, where does that money come from and how do you make it work? You can't just go to the bank and say, you're not allowed to collect those funds. They're like, well, I'm not the guy that went and bought a PlayStation 3 and a Tesla. Right. Uh, you know, I, I didn't buy all those things. So I, I think even people who have incurred a lot of debt, if they're honest, they're going to say, well, it doesn't seem right that you're going to what make other people pay my debt. But that's what the student loan bailout is. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how that is. Are we just going to get into, is this debate coming up going to be more giveaways? Like, you know what? I think cause she's obviously prepping for the debate and putting some, some things out there to talk about. So now she's offering a plan to wipe out household debt. That's a new one. That's a brand new one. How does it work? Yeah. 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 I'm on board. I'm on board for me. Right. You should probably test it, test it with a couple of people, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In other words, send your bills over and get those paid and see how it feels. Yeah. You do it. You, you start with a small sample, see how it works. Yeah. Well, let's, let's on on this Monday shift to a a kind, a kinder, gentler topic. It looks like Tom Hanks is going to play the role of Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Does that seem like a perfect fit or not? It kind of does. It kind of does. He's, uh, you know, America's Mr. Nice Guy, and and um, Mr. Rogers was uh, about as nice as they get. Yeah, it's. Um, I was working out in the little hotel gym here this morning when they were announcing that. I think it was on Good Morning America or something. And then I thought they were actually interviewing Tom Hanks, and uh, you know, so from a distance, and maybe my eyes aren't that good, but I thought, why wow, he looks, he looks, not so good. Mm-hmm. He just looks, he looks terrible. And oh, who did his hair? And uh, I got closer because I thought, I just can't believe what has happened to Tom Hanks. It was actually Carson Daly <laughs> looking, at, looking at the wrong guy. <laughs> but uh, it, what a great fit. We, I, you know, who doesn't like Mr. Rogers? Well, I think a lot of people like Mr. Rogers, and I, I would love to see more people like Mr. Rogers in life. Just kind, gentle, loving, uh, care about neighbors. I think there's something in the Bible that would suggest that's something good to do. Love God and love he, your neighbors. Do you think, though, that Mr. Rogers could survive today's social justice warriors because people seem to like they found something with to, to not like about Mariano Rivera without even knowing the man? Right. And and do you think, like, OK, I'll give an example at the museum the other day at the U-boat exhibit. I saw this little tidbit that uh, when we captured the U-boat, we transferred, we saved 56 of 57 lives. We saved these guys lives and we moved them to um a prisoner of war camp in Louisiana, but we did not 
we intercepted all communications and we did not let them let people back home in Germany know that they were alive, which it said in the thing was a violation of Geneva Convention or something to that effect. And they said the reason why they did that is because the Germans didn't know that we captured the U-boat. They thought it sunk. And so we got intelligence off of the U-boat that helped us decode their secret codes and find out how they were planning their attacks. And that's how we defeated them. That's how we defeated their U-boat attack. Would people today say, you guys, you have to let them let the family know that they're alive. Hmm. But that would have effectively taken away the only chance we had at that time anyway, to decode their signals and figure out how they were sinking hundreds, if not thousands of ships. That's so really... how would that, would that fly today? No. Or would that just, no. Yeah. People yeah. would say, I'm sorry, you have to let them know. And if that means we lose the war then, but that's fair. Ooh. Wow, that's a tough one. Yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. So I'm watching a little bit of the uh, 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And I've just got a pop question for you here as we wrap up our time. Um, two uh, guys, two astronauts uh, walked the moon, but Michael Collins uh, circled in orbit to the dark side of the moon pretty much by himself. Would you rather be yeah. one of the guys walking the moon or the guy in the vehicle on the dark side of the moon? Well, okay. You It'd be cool to walk on the moon, but also to be the inspiration for a Pink Floyd album. You got to figure, <laughs> you figure that has some value, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, which one's which one's going to last the longest, right? <laughs> oh, I don't know if we should explain uh, the reference or not, but uh, I think I'll just let that one go. Yeah, yeah. Hey, by the way, I did find out something uh, on the drive-in. My wife told me that actually uh, the reason why Iowa has the best farmland in the world is because when the glaciers melted due to the last global warming, it took all the great topsoil from Canada, came on down through your state of Minnesota, gave you guys a smattering of it. <laughs> and then by the time it got here and everything melted, we ended up with all the best soil on planet Earth for farming. And she says, do we owe reparations to Canada and Minnesota <laughs> for the soil that we scraped away due to the last global warming? Uh, it's too much. That's something to think about. Yeah. Yep. And just the last final thought is, of course, there was that melting that was going up on the uh, Juno uh, ice uh, ledge, I think they call it. And they discovered as the snow and glaciers were melting, there was a full forest underneath there. I, I love that. You go, gee, how did a forest end up underneath all that frozen stuff? Unless it, at some point in time, it was warmer there. Mm -hmm. Then it froze over. And now it's melting, so it's not unusual what we're going through. Yeah, that was twenty. I think two, that story a couple thousand years yeah, old. Couple thousand years old, and uh, amazing to think that people are going, "Oh, look at this amazing discovery!" It's like, no, no, you're missing the point. There was a forest where there is currently a glacier, meaning right. it was warm there once. Mm -hmm. uh, moot uh, point, right? Uh, moot point. Yeah. Have a great uh, vacation. I will talk to you. Uh, next week at, when you're back home in that great state of Iowa. Thank you. All right. Patrick Albanese has been my guest. We'll take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. Dr. Tim Mulhoff has been a friend of Faith Radio. Every time he comes on the program, I always 
not only enjoy his company, but I uh, always dig for more uh, on what he talks about. He always gets my brain working, and he uh, is a professor of communication at Biola University in California, teaches classes in uh, family communication, interpersonal communication, apologetics, gender, and conflict resolution. Got his PhD in communication. I love this verse he has from Proverbs 18.21. It says, the tongue has the power of life and death. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be back. No, I love having you on. How's your summer going? Well, it was great. We uh, just got back from Europe uh, visiting the journeys of Paul. So we went to Ephesus, Corinth, Rome. It was a blast. So we literally just got back like maybe six days ago. Oh, nice. Um, So I I want a full report in triplicate. Uh, (laughs) It was hot, for one. It was (laughs) crazy hot in Turkey. Yeah. Um, But it's just fascinating to to actually do that. When we were in Corinth, uh, Artemis was one of the top pagan gods, and the uh, stadium that they built to worship him was bigger than the Staples Center here in Los Angeles. Yet the only thing that's left standing is one lone pillar in the middle of a deserted field. And so I think that's fascinating that Christianity has endured. And Artemis, I bet you if we went out on the streets and asked people, um, do you know Artemis? Nobody would know it. Uh, that God, and yet Christianity has endured, and I think that that's a really cool thing for people to remember is that God has a way of keeping his kingdom alive. When you're walking the streets in Ephesus and Corinth, what were some of the thoughts going through your head? Well, that Paul believed it. He believed in the resurrection. He was willing to die for it. He was a Roman citizen. He had certain rights. Um, But in Rome, you had to... the. uh, Persecutions were based on the fact that Christians would not worship pagan gods. And uh, you have two major persecutions that happened in the Roman Empire where you had to publicly uh, sacrifice to a pagan god like Artemis. And Christians just said, no, we're not going to do it. And it cost them their life. And I often think to myself, what beliefs do I have in Christianity? And what beliefs does the church have today that we literally would die for? And uh, how, much, how much has cultural Christianity affected the church today, where we just say, I'm a Christian uh, because my family's Christian, or I, I grew up in the United States or the South, and I just wonder if it cost us something, how many of us would really stand up and say, I'm a follower of Jesus? Well, great point, Tim, um, because you're, what, what, what Paul did um, basically is um, maybe not the degree that we would stand up for what we believe. I mean, it's, it's uh, powerful. Yeah, and I think we're gonna, it's going to cost us. If cultural trends start, if they keep in the direction that they're moving, and this is to say this in California is a pretty powerful thing. I mean, it is no secret that uh, Sacramento, the capital of California, wants to revoke religious liberty, wants to shut down places like Biola University, Azusa Pacific, other Christian universities, because they quite frankly can't stand what we stand for. So we are constantly having to fight back attacks um, on us, on our religious freedom. And so I I think that trend's going to continue. And I think we need to be prepared to say, 
listen, I know it's not particularly um, a great thing to say, but the Bible dictates that I believe certain beliefs when it comes to traditional marriage, when it comes to the status of the fetus. I, I think we're going to come to a point as Christians that it's going to cost us something, and I think that will be a willowing of the church at that point, and it might be a really good thing for us. Uh, to willow the ranks a little bit and get rid of people who are just sitting on the sidelines are cultural Christians. I would agree, and I I pray that I would have the fortitude and the strength to stand up and be one of those bold soldiers. Yeah, me too. So when I was in Rome, um, each one of the Bible professors at Biola University, we were given a city that we were in charge of. So my city was Rome. And so looking at the book of Romans prophetically, uh, Paul, when he wrote the letter to Rome, Nero was 16 years old and had just ascended to the throne of Rome Wow! and was treated as a god. Now, I, I have boys, too, who were 16 <laughs> and yeah. believed that they were god. We just didn't give them the keys to the car. Exactly. You know what I mean? So here's, here's a young, young Nero, and in A.D. 64, there's a fire that hits Rome, and it lasts three days and economically straps Rome. So he looks for an out, and he picks Christians because they would not worship pagan gods, and he blames it on them that this was the gods punishing Rome. So that was one massive uh, persecution, one of the bloodiest in the history of the church. But compare that to AD 315, where Constantine sees a vision while he's on a military campaign, and the vision is you are to conquer in this sign, but he doesn't recognize the sign. He knows he's to worship a god, but doesn't know which god. So fortunately, he goes to some Christian bishops and says, what do you make of this sign? And the bishops say, this is Jesus Christ. So now he becomes a Christian, and uh, Christianity is now decriminalized in 315 AD, and we become the majority. And I, I pose to the people on that trip, what was more damaging to the church, being openly persecuted by Nero or being the majority culture under Constantine. And I think an argument could be made that we did not do well as the dominant culture. We really became lax. And this is where I think cultural Christianity rose up even within the Roman Empire. What were the uh, answers by most of the people on, on your trip? Uh, uh, Nero's persecution. Okay. <laughs> yeah, to be outwardly persecuted like that. And again, that, it was horrible what happened to believers. But here's the cool thing, Bill. So a guy wrote a book, he's a sociologist, he's not a Christian, but he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And in it, he argues that the reason Christianity grew at such a, a, a large rate is that there were three plagues that hit the Roman Empire. They were devastating plagues, 30% mortality rates. And the church had a decision to make. What, what do we do? Do we help our enemies? Do, do we help people persecuting us? Or do we just take care of our own? And in record numbers, Christians would go out into the gutters of Rome. Because, again, if you were sick with this plague, you would protect the family by putting you outside into the gutter. And Christians went out in droves and gave their lives to help complete strangers and to help people that were even uh, going to eventually persecute them. And he makes the point uh, that, boy, that had a big impact on the Roman Empire, this willingness to give your life for your neighbor, they said, was incredibly convincing uh, for people to convert to Christianity. Uh, that is so sobering, Tim, to hear, because it's uh, so sacrificial, so loving, so putting others first. I don't know if that I would be seeing that today. 
Well, we have a bad track record of doing it, unfortunately, Bill. Like I, I have some gay friends who point out to me during the AIDS crisis, right? Uh, there were some churches that stepped in and helped the gay community, but by and large, the majority of the churches sat back and moralized mm-hmm. and said, "Well, look, this is what you get for this is you know this is a whatever," and, and the gay community has never forgotten that. So I, I think as Christians, what sets us apart from everybody else is that in times of turmoil, plague, illness, uh, tragedy, we help everybody. We, we do not discriminate with neighbor love. We step out and say, yeah, even, even the very people that would shut the doors of Biola University, the Biblical Institute of Los Angeles, we will help you in your time of need. That's what Paul says. When your enemy's hungry, I want you to feed him. When he's thirsty, I want you to give him something to drink. Now, that's an amazing thing to say when he is prefiguring Nero's persecution. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about helping Nero when Nero's sick. We would think that the young church would say, Nero, you want to know why your uh, city's burning? Do you want to know why these plagues have hit? It's because you're persecuting God's church, and this is divine judgment on you. But, but Paul says, no, 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 I don't want you to have that attitude. I want you to go out and help the very people that would persecute you. And then he says in Romans 13, evil can be overcome, but it's overcome via goodness. And I think that's a message that the church has forgotten today is that evil can be overcome, but we do it through self-sacrificial goodness that costs us dearly as we seek to help the transgender community, the gay community, uh, people that are antagonistic towards us. We help everybody. So, Tim, what happens when somebody calls you stupid because you think that there are just two genders? <laughs> well, I get why they would say that. I teach gender. I, I got my Ph.D. at UNC Chapel Hill, one of the top feminist theorists, institutions in the entire world. I, I get why people are confused. There's a lot of misinformation, and there's a lot of good information. And so is there gender dysphoria today? Absolutely. Yes. Are people confused about their genders? Yeah, because we're growing up right in this era where we're questioning everything. So the first thing I would do with a person is to say, yeah, you know, I actually um, – I do believe that there's two genders, but it, it wasn't as neat as it was 10 years ago. Um, so the way I define masculinity would be very different than people would define it uh, 15, 20 years ago. But I'd want to hear what that person's saying. I'd want to know, uh, why do you think there's more than just two genders, and how does that impact you personally? So I don't mind if they call me stupid. Right? Uh, uh, what does the book of Proverbs say? A wise man overlooks an insult. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to let a silly little word like stupid derail the whole conversation. <laughs> but today, Bill, Ooh. in today's argument culture, we've become thin-skinned. We yeah. go to war over everything. And oh, I think so we need to step back and say, yeah, you know, I'm not going to bite on this argument, but I do want to hear you out. And I, I promise you as a Christian, I will not give you an insult for an insult, as Peter says in First Peter. Mm-hmm. And then – Tim, when you think about some of the boys that are basically competing in girls' sports, and you know we're being we're being stupid for not accepting that that's a okay, and that's yeah. um, you know we're not accepting that that men have periods too, huh? <laughs> 
But, but here's what we've forgotten, Bill. There's two levels of communication, not just one. There is the content level. That would be our arguments, right? But there's the relational level that today I think we've forgotten about, and that is a level of compassion, a level of respect, a level of acknowledgement. So I was on an airplane, and I watched a documentary that was called Becoming Carol, and it was about a trans athlete in high school that was doing exactly that, transitioning from a boy to a girl, but was allowed to compete in a track as this in-between, right? And the dad said this with tears in his eyes. I'll never forget this. He said, listen, all I want is my child to be able to play high school sports. And now when this child plays, everybody is on one side or the other. My child has been stripped of all the joy of playing high school sports. Now, in the end, I'm going to probably disagree with him. But in the moment, I'm going to say to this dad, man, I'm so sorry this is happening to your child. I'm so sorry this is happening to you. What happened to a compassionate response, even as ultimately we might disagree with a person and establish rules in high school sports that would keep that from happening? But, but we need to – whatever happened to us first saying, man, that must really be horrible to experience what you and your family is going through right now. I think we see that as even compromise sometimes. And I think Jesus gave very compassionate responses to individuals. Mm-hmm. I could talk to you all day, Tim. Let me take a short break. When we come back, uh, Dr. Tim Muehlhoff is my guest. He's written a number of books, all of which you would love to get your hands on. Uh, his recent is Defending Your Marriage, the Reality of Spiritual Battle. Um, he's also written books like Winsome Persuasion, Beg to Differ, Um, authentic communication, the God conversation. It goes on and on. Let me take a short break. We'll join back with Tim in just a minute. Pretty appropriate song for Dr. Tim Muehlhoff because he lives in Southern California and he has uh, authored a number of books. And uh, Tim, right before we went to break, you were talking about just extending compassion uh, to a parent who, you know, is seeing a dream of one of their ch- uh, his children or his or her children get smashed. And and you talk about uh, that beautifully in one of your books. And you know, Paul talks about it in First Corinthians twelve: if one part suffers, then all should share in his or her pain. Uh, we're not that good at that anymore, are we? Mm. Well, what's the second great commandment? I, I love what Jesus says. The second great commandment is just like the first. And the first is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think we're failing at neighbor love today. I really do, uh, Bill. And I think this might be controversial, but I was speaking at a pastor's forum, and I was talking about the needs of the transgender community, 30% suicide rates within the transgender community, attempted or actual. And somebody said to me, well, what what can we do to welcome them? And here here is my answer, Bill. And by the way, let me just say this before I tell you what I said. I've never been invited back to this conference. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So here's my answer. Yeah. I said, do you have a trans bathroom? Do you have a bathroom for transgendered people? Right, Because going to the bathroom is a fundamental human need, and it's even a civil rights issue if you want to go way back. Mm-hmm. So I would say if a person can't go to the bathroom in a place that they feel comfortable, 
then have you really opened the doors of your church for the transgender community? And that did not play well. Because number one response, well, then we're condoning their choice. And I said, no, I don't think that's true. You're accommodating them so that they can feel comfortable in a church long enough that they could hear the gospel being preached, that they could hear more about who Jesus is. But why? So, so at the same pastor's forum, I said, if you were to have lunch with Caitlyn Jenner, right, Bruce Jenner, one of the greatest Olympic athletes we had, now is Caitlyn Jenner. Mm-hmm. I said, would you call him Bruce by principle, or would you call his preferred name Caitlyn? And it was split. I said, guys, so we're going to lose a chance to have a great conversation with Caitlin because you're going to make a point on the front end that's going to totally derail the entire conversation. I mean, how disrespectful to not call a person by their preferred name. I think that that would end the conversation in the beginning. Let's not do that. Let's Mm -hmm. allow these conversations to breathe so that we can have good, robust conversations. I'd call him, I would call him Caitlin. Yeah. And yeah. So these are the choices we're going to have to make. And again, it's really easy to do that as a professor who doesn't run the university, as a professor who's not the pastor of a church. But I think we need to make really hard decisions today and do radical neighbor love. Yeah. Tim, when you talk about the passage where Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, if I was a new believer and I came to you and I said, well, Am I supposed to put the same energy that I have into loving me into loving my neighbor? How would you respond? Oh, I think it's both. Oh, yeah. Remember what Paul says? He says, I, I, I do not want you to merely look out for your own needs, but for the needs of others. So, yeah, I think, I think self-care, I think having a healthy self-image um, and what I love about this new generation of students is they're not afraid to go to a therapist. They're not afraid to say that they're stuck, mm-hmm. right? My dad's generation, you, you would have been an absolute failure to go see a therapist, <laughs> right? right. You know, he'd take his car to have his car looked at by a specialist, but, but to think of a specialist for him or, the, or his marriage for that matter. So, no, I, I think Jesus wants us to have really – God-centered self-images, self-esteem that is rooted not in the world, but in what God thinks of us. So yeah, I think it's both, but but maybe we're a bit too absorbed today in our own self-perception. That We talk about Facebook depression, which is a real thing that psychologists are now saying, boy, this constant portraying of an image online is maybe the negative turn. But I think Jesus is concerned about how you care about your neighbor and how you care about yourself. Yeah, I would agree. What do we learn, if anything, from our parents' generation? You know, like you said, your dad would never get in the car and go speak to someone. Uh, what what, What do we learn from that? Uh, I think we learn a good thing and we avoid a bad thing. Okay. I, I think the bad thing is just what we've been talking about. Therapy was a bad word. Marriage counseling meant that you were an abject failure. This was the last stop. There wasn't anything preventative. Uh, my parents never went to a marriage conference. They just I think my mom might have been willing, but I don't think my you know my dad would have done it. But here's the good thing about my dad. He was married 48 years in a difficult marriage. It was a tough marriage, and he stuck it out because he said he would. 48 years ago, he made a promise 
that he was going to stay in the marriage for the sake of the kids and for the sake of his word. And he stuck it out 48 years. And I, I think there's something commendable about that. I always say to my students at Biola, you ought to have a big old um, pit in your stomach the day of your wedding. When you're standing up in front of your family, her family, God, your best friends, and you say, hey, I'm in this for life. I have no idea what the future is going to bring, but I want to tell you right now, I'm in it for life. I'm not going anywhere. That ought to really scare you a little bit. But I appreciate that my dad's generation, he said, yeah, I made a promise. I'm sticking with it. Today's generation, we, we, uh, we get divorced because we don't want the kids to see an unhappy couple. And I think it's a kind of a different mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the enemy obviously has been at work breaking up uh, families forever. So yes. uh, what was it about that generation? Uh, now, you say they didn't have a good marriage, so they were, there was a lot of um, uh, teeth gritting, it sounds like. Yeah, yes. And um, again, they didn't have tools. That was the really sad thing is they just didn't have relational tools. They, and and they, didn't go, they weren't church people. Mm-hmm. So I, I think today um, we need community to do this. Marriage is hard, and yet God has called us that perfect love casts out fear. So when you make that lifelong commitment to a person, there's a security within it. I I remember early on in our marriage, we were having an argument, me and my wife, and she said to me, hey, let's get this thing resolved right now or we're going to be pretty miserable the next 40 years. (laughs) You know what I mean? I love that. That's That's a great attitude is, hey, we're in this for life, so let's fix some of the things Uh, We need to fix. And so I don't want to just totally be negative about the older generation. Uh, This generation, we live in the divorce culture today. People do divorce um, uh, for a multitude of reasons. The number one reason we know from research is unhappiness. And and I think God would say, yeah, unhappiness is not a biblical reason to get divorced. Uh, Trust me that I can get through your unhappiness and can can provide you what, what James says is not happiness but joy is what I think God is offering to struggling couples. Tim, is there some practical criteria that uh, couples could uh, use to detect if spiritual oppression is in play in their marriage? Yeah. So I wrote the book, Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Battle. And in it, I, uh, I read 20 books on spiritual battle. And I asked the question, because all of them would address diagnosing the demonic. I said, are there characteristics that all 20 books mentioned? And so I came up with what I call my power five. Now, there were other ones that were mentioned by a bunch of them, but I, I was looking for something that was mentioned by all 20 books. And so one would be uncontrolled anger. You can't let it go. Mm-hmm. You are mad at your spouse when you go to bed and you wake up mad. And Paul says, do not let the sun go down in your anger as not to give the devil a foothold. Um, there's also another one that says um, shame. I mean, it's one thing to think I can, I can be a better husband. I think that could even be conviction of the Holy Spirit. But if I think I'm the worst husband in the world, then I think uh, that's the devil getting in there trying to shame me in some kind of way. Uh, unforgiveness was another one. Matter of fact, a lot of them said unforgiveness is the number one way that um, – we uh, allow the devil a foothold. We're getting a lot of calls. 
Oh, I know. I'm so sorry. That, That's okay. We've waited for I know this call po- all I know you're day. popular. You know how it works? Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> but you're more important. No, if you need to take the call, we can jump now. No, uh, no. Th- uh, we're, we're, yeah, there's certain issues we're, we're dealing with. We just got back from Europe, and so we're trying to resolve a couple things. But thanks for your patience. I'm sorry. That was incredibly unprofessional. Oh, no, Tim, not in the least. Right I'm, I'm more interested in caring about you. If you need to take that call, seriously, we're almost out of time. So... Um, well, thanks, Bill. I, I think I will. I, it's something we have to yep, address. Yep. But uh, thank you so much, and I always love being on your show. Uh, I love having you on. Dr. Tim Muehlhoff has been my guest. If you head over to his website, it's timmuehlhoff.com. I'll spell it for you. T-I-M-M-U-E-H-L-H-O-F-F. Tim Muehlhoff. And he's written uh, a number of books and the book that we were just chatting about that we didn't quite get all five PowerPoints done as much as I would have liked to is called Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Battle. He's also written a great book called Winsome Persuasion. And I think uh, it's pretty important that we are winsomely persuasive in our conversation with people uh, in the world. And he wrote another book called Marriage Forecasting. And he also wrote The God Conversation. And that's a great book. I read that one as well. And then uh, his other book is called Authentic Communication. And Tim is an interesting man, great resource, and I always enjoy talking to him. He's always got something fresh to say. So uh, we've got a great second hour coming up. Uh, Dr. Jerry White, he's been with the Navigators for over 40 years. He's got quite a story, and we're going to bring him on. And then uh, a nice uh, replay interview with Dr. Timothy Keller on his book of Jonah, which I read and studied and underlined, and I just found it absolutely fascinating. His insights to the book of Jonah are so good, and I thought, I just want you to hear that again, so why not? Dr. Timothy Keller and Dr. Jerry White, all in hour two. We'll take a short break and be back in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.